If uh, you were here for my testimony three weeks ago, I mentioned the first time I was in a Reformed Baptist church, and that was in uh, Montville, New Jersey. That was 1984, so I'm coming up on 37 years in June. <laughs> but before that, we had Reformed Baptist family conferences a year before in Bluffton, Ohio, and that was the Midwest Reformed Baptist Family Conference. But the conferences when the church in Carlisle and the church in Montville were really new were going on even in the early 70s. And in 1973, Ian Murray was invited to a conference at Harvey Cedars in New Jersey and did five history lessons on the history of revival. And there's a number of us that are so indebted to the light that he brought to that history and the historical resources that he used over the years I had gotten hold of and started to really drink this history in. Uh, because as far as I know, Relatively little is this history even taught in our churches, in the Reformed Baptist churches anymore, but I've always been interested in it. But as we move to the end of the 18th century, to the beginning of the 19th century after the Great Awakening, under the preaching of Edwards Whitfield and the Two Tenets and the Great Awakening, we inquire why was there such a falling away during that period up until 1792 and there was an alarming dearth that had taken place uh, during this period and a lot of it had to do with the revolutionary war it just crowded everything out there just wasn't a lot of tension attention to revivals and awakening in the churches, and a lot of that was because of the French infidelity that was brought in as the French helped us in that war, and pamphlets of Thomas Paine and others were being circulated even among the troops. So there was quite a falling away, but about 1792, and I will say before I say that date, there was never a time that revival in a small measure wasn't in one local church or another. But in 1792 is when the scene began to change and uh, the person you see in this picture, Bennett Tyler, was a pastor and very interested in the revival and he wrote the biography of Asa Hell Nettleton. Why well, I had hinted last time that we taught that a lot of these pastors became uh, college president. He was the uh, president of Dartmouth College. It was a good time. And about the year 1800, there were so many local revivals that a magazine was commenced that was called the Connecticut Evangelical Magazine. And Bennett Tyler had taken a number of the stories out of this magazine and put them into a book called Revivals at the End of the 18th and the Beginning of the 19th Century. 
Well, we got back from Michigan yesterday, so I was checking my mail, and I never ordered this for the class. I had it marked for some time ago uh, because the price was so low on a number of these first edition magazines. I actually, this just came in the mail yesterday. It's the Connecticut Evangelical Magazines for the year 1804 and 1805 because this magazine was started in the year 1800 in July. That's how they date these annuals. And so I was looking at this magazine, which was well over 200 years old now, and I'm always interested in who signed it and who was the first owner of this book. And this says Solomon Warren. And I said, maybe there's a chance I could find out who Solomon Warren was. So I was doing searches on the internet and found his name at a place I've used before called Find a Grave Memorial and realized that the owner of this book lived from 1704 and died in the year 1820. And I was holding a book from his library and these things always have some effect upon me because it's a reminder to me, especially coming yesterday when one of the people that were on the staff of Desiring God Ministries made a public proclamation that he was leaving Christianity. And I'm trying to process that idea in light of what I'm reading here, and it really affected me. What happens is these people engaged in polemics, professing Christians, they will pile on to somebody like that that he fell away. But for me, it's a warning to persevere. But for the grace of God, I would not stay in the way myself. And even last night, because I sometimes will wake up in the middle of the night, but last night it really affected me and I was crying out to God and thinking about the book that I had just gotten and it, I was having a little revival in my own heart, which I would want to have more often. Now, the Connecticut Evangelical Magazine has been interesting to me for years, and I haven't been able to get first editions like this. What I do is, this here is called a print-on-demand book. If you go to books.google.com and you find a magazine or a book or anything that you want, if you look in the left-hand column, you'll see an option for uh, find this book and one of them is you know Amazon a books but also print on demand and they have one of these machines there was one in Grand Rapids just miles down 28th Street from us and they can print this on what's called a uh, espresso book machine from the time they start printing out these pages cut the book and put a cover on is five minutes. So their expression is we can print out a book in the time it takes for you to percolate a cup of coffee. And that's just how our times have changed because the type of stuff that I am interested in for a study like this often is very hard to get these books. There's no natural demand for these things. As Samuel Miller, a teacher at Princeton said, often the supply has to create the demand. In other words, we overstock the shelves with good literature and people see the literature 
and they buy it as they are looking. Very rarely would a book like this would you have a number of people say, I would like to see that in print. And that kind of demand would create a printing, not for a lot of these works. So here you see Heman Humphrey, and now he was the president of Amherst College, but also a congregational preacher, and also very interested in the Second Great Awakening because he was personal friends with Asahel Nettleden. Humphrey uh, was ordained in 1807. So for about seven years, eight years, almost anything that we knew about the revivals that were going on was because these pastors who were pastoring local congregations where God was coming in his manifest presence, they would send their reports to the editors of this magazine and they would be published. There were so many that were going on. Now, this isn't just a magazine about the revivals going on. You have an evangelical magazine from 1800. The other articles they have in there, the reports and uh, tracts that they would publish, it was a very, very edifying magazine. I remember sitting in Calvin Seminary when I first got to Grand Rapids in 1988. It probably was 1989. I'm sitting in one of the finest reform libraries in this country. And I came across the very first Banner of Truth magazine from 1955. And it was, uh, the editors were Sidney Norton and Ian Murray. And I read that beginning editorial. And Ian Murray in the day was only 24. And I said, this is really, really edifying. They were trying to make an impression on a decaying church. But then I read the very first editorial from this magazine, and I thought to myself, this was a different day. So Heben Humphrey wrote a book that has really helped me for this period, but some of it he did see firsthand in the year 1807 and onwards as he was a pastor when a lot of the beginnings of the Great Awakening had begun. The next person, now this is so interesting to me because Edward Dor Griffin at the end of the 18th and the beginning of the 19th century was really being used of God as a preacher and the first pre, uh, pastorate he had a revival came and 50 people were converted at one time and a little later, 100 people at one time. And when Ian Murray, and this is why I brought up the conference at Harvey Cedars, 1973 at the time, they were just starting to get the Banner of Truth books out. There was now beginning to be a demand for them. In 1973, these books published by the Banner of Truth were not in print. And Ian Murray is referring to the sermons of Edward Dor Griffin and saying these are very rare, and he was able to get hold of them. But to make a proper impression on you how there is not the demand that you would like to see for these revivals, Banner of Truth did publish these two volumes. And I was talking to a good friend of mine yesterday who knows his history very well. These books are out of print and he would say you can't almost give them away in fact he sold me two volumes brand new 
for $16. But this was one of the great preachers at the uh, end of the 18th century and was held in very high esteem. This last week while we were in Michigan, I read a 70-page biography of him. And he was held in such high esteem. And in today's church, he's almost totally forgotten. When uh, many of you have heard the name Adoniram Judson, became a Baptist and then went to Burma, but had so much potential as a young man. And Edward Nor Griffin was a Presbyterian. He had switched from Congregationalism to Presbyterianism. And they were starting a new seminary, the first seminary in this country. And these seminaries were started because pastoral training used to be done in colleges in this country. Yale and Harvard and even Brown University originally was a Baptist college, started in 1764. By the end of the 18th century, these colleges started to become so liberal, and a number of people showed up at Adoniram Judson's house, uh, three men, and Adoniram Judson's father was a well-known congregational pastor, so he was going to be in the ground work of this new seminary called Andover Theological Seminary. And Edward Dor Griffin was so impressed with Adoniram Judson, he tried to press him to become a fellow pastor with him in the largest church in Boston in the day. And his parents really wanted that to happen. And Adoniram Judson, for the second time, really broke his parents' heart. The first time is when he had become a deist as he was in Brown University, then the College of Rhode Island. And he broke his parents' heart and said, no, I'm not going to pastor in Boston. God is calling me overseas, God really impressed upon him to go to Burma. So there was a revival under Griffin's ministry, and I want to just, I want to keep these quotes short, but give you enough information to know what this was like. And it is said in the Connecticut Evangelical Magazine, it is hoped that about 50 heads of families have been the subjects of this work, a considerable part of whom rank among the respectable and influential characters in the town. The power of the Almighty Spirit has prostrated the stoutness of a considerable number, who are the last that the human expectation would have fixed on to be the subjects of a change. That gives you hope. Revival coming on a local assembly and the people that you least expect to be converted, the ones that you've prayed for and there's no sign that it's making its impression on them. He's saying during this revival, these are the ones that God visited with his effectual power. One old man who had not been in our house of worship and probably not in any other for more than 20 years has been arrested in his retirement by the divine spirit and still remains like the troubled sea when it cannot rest. So that was just one revival under Edward Dor Griffin's ministry. Uh, Edward Dor Griffin actually studied under the 
tutelage of Jonathan Edwards' son, Jonathan Edwards, Jr. The reason I put that sermon up there is because it's a very new thing for people when they hear Jonathan Edwards, they will object that he had slaves. I, I realize that and I've studied that and I'm not trained enough to make any kind of defense for that, but it was interesting to me at least that the people that Edwards affected were really the forerunners of the abolition movement. And that was a sermon that he had preached called The Injustice and Impolicy of the Slave Trade. But it wasn't just him. It was um, the people who were most immediately trained by Edwards, who became the leaders of the abolitionist movement. For example, Samuel Hopkins, who actually lived with the Edwards for a time. Now, Timothy Dwight, and I'm bringing up these names because these were presidents of colleges that by 1800 had become so liberal. And when Timothy Dwight got to Yale College as its president, of 110 students, maybe nine were converted. And um, Asa Hell Nettleton who was a great preacher during the Second Great Awakening, was a student at that time. As, an, as a freshman, he said he didn't know any of his fellow students that were even converted. And it just shows how much it had changed. But Dwight is the grandson of Jonathan Edwards. His mother was a daughter of Jonathan and Sarah Edwards, and Sarah made such an impression on him and his education. I was having a conversation with a dear friend of mine in Grand Rapids Wednesday at a prayer meeting before the prayer meeting about how education has been dumbed down and believe me, he can furnish a history of it. But Dwight's an example of the genius of young students in those days that says, at the age of six, he was sent to the grammar school where he early began to importune his father to permit him to study Latin. Now, his father wasn't training him, but he'd have to get his father's permission as a six-year-old to study Latin. He was denied from an impression that he was too young to profit by studies of that description, and a master was charged not to allow him to engage in them. But it was soon found to be in vain to prohibit him in his zeal. And he didn't own the necessary books to study Latin, but as the older students at the grammar school would be out doing other things, he would go into the library and just take their Latin books down and master them at the age of six and seven. He availed himself of the opportunity where the elder boys were at play to borrow their Latin grammars, and in this way, without his father's knowledge or the master's consent, he studied through Lily's Latin grammar twice. When his master discovered the progress he had made, he applied earnestly to Timothy Dwight's father and finally obtained a reluctant consent that he might proceed, though every effort short of compulsion was used to discourage him. So Timothy Dwight pursued the study of the languages with great alacrity. Now listen to this sentence. 
I'm only stating the facts. I can't give you much more detail than is in this sentence. It says he would have been prepared for admission to college at the age of eight had he not been discontinued by a providential hindrance from his studies. And it rendered it necessary for him to be taken home and placed again under the instruction of his mother. I think some of that was for health reasons. But when Asa Hell Nettleton was at Yale College, a revival came on the students, and it says there was one case in this revival which awakened very general sympathy. A member of one of the lower classes became deeply anxious for his spiritual welfare at the commencement of the revival. He was indeed the first person in college, probably, who was under conviction of sin. As the revival, as the work went on, others who were awakened at a much later period were apparently brought into the kingdom and were rejoicing in hope while this young student was left in the bitterness of despair with the arrows of the Almighty drinking up his spirit. His health rapidly declined under his sufferings. He was confined in a great measure to his bed, and it was feared that with a feeble constitution he must soon sink under the weight of his distress unless relief should be obtained. So in an adjoining room to this student, because of the infidelity that was going on, which, by the way, Timothy Dwight addressed, these people threw the gauntlet down to their professor and said, we want to challenge you. We'll bring our infidelity against your Christianity. And they thought they would win the day. They didn't know this bright young man who had now become the president of the college was so much more an overmatch for them. So he's in this adjoining room, an atheist. And in an adjoining room, there lived an avowed disbeliever in spiritual religion who denied the reality of a divine influence in revivals and from the commencement of the present work had regarded those who were concerned in it with scorn. A Christian friend who knew his sentiments asked him, come next door and let's visit the sufferer and see if these things are a fiction. So he led him to the bedside of this young man under unbelievable distress and fear and conviction. So the atheist stood for a moment looking at the emaciated form before him. He listened to the exclamations which told the distress and horror of an awakened conscience. And then turning, went back to his room to weep there under a sense of his own sin. Now listen to the result. Not long after, talking about the atheistic student, to the wonder of all his companions that was said of him as of Saul of Tarsus, behold, he prays. He afterwards, as student, entered into the ministry and devoted himself to the cause of missions and has been for more than 20 years an active and successful laborer upon the heathen ground. But he was awakened when he saw the suffering of this student next door. But what happened to the student? It's late at night. There are some people around him praying for him. And providentially, one of them was the young Asahel Nettleton 
this student who was going to be greatly moved, used in the Second Great Awakening, and this is later on, and that's why I didn't try to cover all that here. It would have been too much, but he was the one that really took issue to the measures of Charles Finney when Finney came on the stage. I've taught on his life a couple of times, and those are available on Sermon Audio at the Narrated Puritan, but it says a few Christian friends lingered about the bed of the agonized and despairing sinner. And many were the prayers offered that the balm of Gilead might be applied to his wounded spirit. At length, a messenger was dispatched to summon the president. So they went to get Timothy Dwight. They asked the president, please come. This is beyond what we're able to do. We can't help him. And Dwight, of course, very moved at what he was hearing. It seemed to those in attendance that unless relief was found for this student, he was going to die. The hour was late. But Dwight promptly attended the call and came quickly as one sent of God as a bearer of good tidings of great joy. For a short time he seemed overwhelmed, Timothy Dwight. So deeply did he share in the agony of the awakened student. The student is suffering and the college president is greatly affected with it. At length, however, taking a seat by the bedside, he gradually directed the anxious inquirer to the divine sufficiency the infinite fullness of the Lord Jesus. He recited the invitations of the gospel to him and then followed his paternal counsel by prayer to God. That prayer, it is believed, was heard and the words which he spoke were a healing balm from on high. A sweet serenity seemed to steal over the agitated sinner's mind. In a letter from the individual whose case is described in the foregoing statement, he says, the Christian friend, that's how he refers to him, that was praying at his side was Asahel Nettleton, and the infidel, they don't give his name, but he is now a missionary of the American board. The messenger who was sent for President Dwight was Asahel Nettleton. He remained with me all night. He was besieging the throne of grace. His whole soul seemed bent on my deliverance. So the sinner under distress is now converted, and he's recounting this. And he's telling the hearers or readers that Asahel Nettleton's prayers were so effectual. He said, man never pleaded with more fervency, and I cannot doubt that I was more indebted to him, Asahel Nettleton, for my relief than to any other person. He took such an interest in my salvation as events the deepest love for my soul. I think he was a professor of religion before he entered college. What was the character of his piety up to the spring of 1808? Of course, I don't know. But I well correct, recollect that soon after I was brought under conviction and he found me out and became one of my spiritual guides. So I'll just move to the end of this because I just don't have the time to I'll go into detail about Asahel Nettleton. There's just so much there as Delamore wrote this great biography of Whitfield. So Tyler wrote the biography of uh, Asahel Nettleton. And there's one that's been written in the year 2012 that's uh, far more in detail. But uh, that's Asahel Nettleton on the right. And the reason I put Samuel Lovett Waldo's picture there, I've always been intrigued by 
they didn't have cameras in those days. The camera was the artist, and he painted his portrait, and he painted the uh, picture of himself there. Go ahead, brother. Yeah, go ahead. Well, and he had this advantage, and that is when the Holy Spirit comes in his manifest presence on a person or a community or an area during a revival, uh, all objections that an atheist would typically raise, he's under so much conviction now because when the Holy Spirit comes, all of your excuses and so on vanish because you cannot uh, deny that something is going on here. And they're like this awakened sinner. Um, they see that there is such a presence of God and such a foretaste of what it is going to be like to stand before him unreconciled. That the typical apologetic that the atheist would return is hushed almost immediately. In fact, uh, Jonathan Edwards says his most effectual sermon during the Great Awakening was on Romans 3.19, that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may become guilty before God. And the name of that sermon is called The Justice of God and the Damnation of Sinners. And so the Holy Spirit is bringing these things with such power that the usual caviling and resisting at once is just dropped because they feel something that they know is not nature, and they're afraid. I'm not saying they have godly sorrow. They are deeply afraid. Anyway, i got to move on to Ashbel Green because... Um, Archibald Alexander's picture is up here because this is the man that I told you who is so influential to me as a young Christian in his book, Thoughts on Religious Experience, but what's interesting about the first generation of Princeton Theological Seminary that I think started to be missing in the later generations, the first three men that were really involved, Alexander, Samuel Miller, and Ashbel Green, were pastors for years before they became professors. And so you really had more of a affection to what was going on in revival, and the things started to change from Charles Hodge onward, but that would be a whole different discussion. So Ashbel Green was a valedictorian of the class of 1783 at the College of New Jersey, and when he was given his valedictorial address, George Washington and the members of the Continental Congress were all in attendance at the commencement ceremony, which had never happened before. 
He was the second alumnus to serve as president of Princeton. So Ashbel Green was a prominent clergyman serving as minister of the Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia and a chaplain to the United States Congress. And as a result, became a good friend of uh, George Washington. He represented the old side. Well, Princeton had also drifted theologically about the time of Yale, and so Ashbel Green was really concerned about it, and he was one of the people who sought to bring revival, and by revival I'm not talking about the real spiritual revival, but really press upon these students the seriousness of their departing from the faith, and he was instrumental in starting Princeton Seminary in 1812. When I first got to Grand Rapids, I knew these names, and I knew I knew the Princeton theologians and uh, Mr. Kriegel, who used, uh, bought, or I mean, ran the used bookstore there, had just bought a 10,000 book library set from the people that uh, had a bookstore in Swingle, Pennsylvania, that was originally run by I.C. Herendeed, the very first person to publish any of the tracks of A.W. Pink. So I saw these volumes in there. These are all first edition, but rebound. This is for the year 1824. And I knew they were worth some money, and he gave me the set, because there were, at the time, missing a couple of volumes. Uh, Mr. Kriegel sold me these for $200, which in itself was a steal. And I never realized the Christian Advocate conducted by Ashbel Green, because this is volume two, I never saw this until a couple of years after I got this. But I opened this book up, and Ashbel Green's personal signature is here. It says, dedicated to Cumberland College by the editor, and it says a Green. So I didn't even realize I had Ashbel Green's signature for some time after I got that. But I want to tell you a story that's I enjoy t uh, telling this story, and in our day, it's almost completely unknown. Uh, Ashbel Green had married the daughter of John Stockton, who was a plantation owner, John Stockton was, and very well-to-do, and he had a number of uh, slaves that he owned, and as a gift to his daughter, Elizabeth, on his, her marrying of Ashbel Green, gave her a slave, and they named her Betsy after Elizabeth, but she kept her name Stockton. So, Ashbel Green, Elizabeth get married, this is a wedding present, and I don't think Ashbel Green would have anything to do with slavery. It just wasn't acceptable to a godly Christian man like that. So what he did was, you had to go by the uh, rules that were on the books in those days, and he manumitted her. He gave her her freedom. And for a while, for a while, she had stayed with a uh, nephew or something because as a young lady, she was pretty rough. She was pretty wild. And uh, she stayed there, but she was technically free. And she appealed to Ashbel Green, would you be willing to let me stay with you again? You can... Uh, pay me or whatever, I realize that uh, I have my freedom, but I want you to educate me. I want you to, it was very uncommon for slaves to have that kind of an education in the early uh, 1800s. 
And so she was uh, educated by Ashbel Green and began, uh, because she was converted under a revival that came under Ashbel Green's ministry because he was also a pastor. She got converted and she got convicted and she said, I would like in some way to be a missionary. I don't know how. Uh, and of course, the only place she could think of was going back to Africa, which people pleaded with her that really wouldn't be safe. And so, I don't have a picture, in my other presentation, I had a picture of a young couple who also wanted to be in the mission field, and they were going to the Sandwich Islands, which is now Hawaii. And Ashbel Green, knowing of this lady's ambition, oh, that's the stewards there on the right, excuse me, said, you should take her with you. For one thing, she knows about nursing, and uh, Mrs. Stewart was expecting, and she could be of service to you. And it was really difficult in those days to accomplish this, but this former slave had such a burden to be used of God somehow in the missionary field. Her conversion was so exceptional. So she was the first single woman missionary in the modern missionary era, born in Princeton in 1798. And as I said, she was for a while a slave. In 1817, she was admitted as a member of the First Presbyterian Church in Princeton under Ashbel Green and formally manumitted, as I said, or freed at that time, and, but kept her surname of Stockton. She remained as a paid domestic servant with the family and was taught to read. She gained her education from reading in the library and homeschooled by Ashbel Green. So she learned of the plans of Charles Stewart, a student at Princeton, and, they, and she went to Hawaii with them and began to instruct others who would have been very savage in those days in Hawaii, teaching them to read and write and do math, and she was very good at what she did. Now, the Stewarts, I believe, suffered some health problems, and after a short time, they came back to um, Philadelphia, but she continued through the rest of her life uh, serving others this way, and being an educator, which is very unusual at that time, but so amazing was her conversion that she just gave her life for the rest of her days and just serving others. And these type of stories aren't really well known. And I've always rejoiced to hear stories like that. That's why I share it. Now, I have to move quickly on. I got two more things to mention, but uh, there is a man named Richard Owen Roberts. I, I believe he's still alive. I know his wife, Maggie, was really suffering health problems, and he's getting to be in his upper 80s. But he's one of the living, leading experts on revival, and he published six books called The Revival Library. And you can still get them in used bookstores. But Joshua Bradley was interesting to me. In fact, I did a podcast for the seminary on him because Baptists you don't hear a lot about their involvement in the Second Great Awakening. And Joshua Bradley was a Baptist pastor who actually 
gathered up a number of letters, this is apart from the Connecticut Evangelical Magazine, and published uh, counts of religious revivals in the United States from 1815 to 1818. And on these books, like the revival books, even if you don't find the books, if you go to my website, if you do a search on the narrated Puritan at Sermon Audio, I've narrated so much of this. And I'll just read this as we're ending. Just a little note from one revival, because there's one sentence here I want to impress you with. Nothing has appeared like a revival in this town, and this was Ackworth, New Hampshire, until 1814. In this year, the Reverend Cook was ordained. At the First Communion, after his consecration, 16 offered themselves to the church. Immediately after this, instances of individual conviction made their appearance in different parts of the society, and one and another were made to rejoice in God. That's what I want to zero in on. A solemn and strict attention was paid to the word preached and the good word progressed gradually until September 1816, in which time about 60 were added to the church. Every seed in the house of God was filled, not with drowsy and attentive hearers, but with awakened immortals hanging on the lips of the speaker with almost breathless attention. And I mentioned this last time, using your pastor as an example that if he was preaching to this congregation and a revival came and people were hanging on every word that proceeded out of his mouth. And this is what happened here. Hanging on the lips of the speaker with almost breathless attention, looking as if their everlasting all depended on the proper improvement of a single sermon. Neither were the people satisfied with attending merely on the duties of the sanctuary. Conference meetings were established in different parts of the society and were attended with increasing interest. So you have three years of accounts that he had gathered up and had published. And all of this really is before the major part of the Great Awakening took place. Because Nettleton began his ministries really 1820 through 1844. In the last few years of his life, he became very, very sick and was just did not have the strength. And that's part of the reason he couldn't carry on a fight with Charles uh, Finney over these new measures, even though he abhorred what he was saying as he was just too ill to accomplish it. But it would just take too much time to go into his history. And that's why I stop with the story of Joshua Bradley. And I'm already over time, so I'll finish up with a prayer. Holy Father, how could we not want to see this repeated? For 50 years, revival after revival hit these local congregations and swept America as it was going forth in its building of a nation. We want your spirit to return upon us. We cry out to you for that. We commit this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh,